Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today on The Exchange, I'm happy to welcome Yvonne Turner, a New York-based DJ, producer, and remixer whose work has helped form the foundations of house music. Turner is known as one of the only women among the elite group in New York's house history, yet her story has gone largely undocumented. Born in Harlem in 1953, she started DJing regularly by the late 70s, playing weekly parties in Flatbush and getting her musical education at The Loft. There, she says, she learned how good music should sound. It inspired her to start going to the studio and sharing her musical revelations with other people. As a female producer, she was often relegated to the small print on records, bumped to associate or co-producer status, or even marked as a mixer instead of a remixer. Many of the male vocalists she worked with got credit for the music instead. But Turner penned some acclaimed house music productions, like the songs Set Fire to Me, Music is the Answer, and she even went on to remix Whitney Houston. Her work has had a lasting influence on the early days of house music and later its offshoots. While Turner took a back seat for a few years, deciding to teach in elementary schools and wind down her touring, recently she's gotten back into music and wants to set the record straight about the history of house music and her place, and many women's, within it. Turner ends the discussion with some interesting reflections on the state of contemporary dance music. With all of the music being produced and released online every day, she says, the art form of music making is going to be lost. And it's important that artists think about creating art that has meaning instead of purely reacting to the pace at which the industry moves. Do you know that there's over 100,000 songs released every day? That's pollution. I mean, that's gonna, <laughs> that's gonna kill the business. Between that and AI, it's gonna kill the business. Yeah. And so if we don't, as stewards of this art, do our best to produce and play and perform the best music that we can from our heart and our soul, it's gonna be lost. There's a wealth of knowledge to be learned from this conversation, so I hope you enjoy. This is a live talk that was hosted by the New York-based party, mix series, and record label Coloring Lessons, which was co-founded by Craig Hanfield and Brandon Weems of the duo Muscle Cars. They moderate this talk alongside Lakuti and Tomasumo, and they accept some great crowd questions at the end. Thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, here is the one and only Yvonne Turner. Hey everyone, thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us for this roundtable hosted by Coloring Lessons, Your Love, and Public Records. Thank you very much. Today we are joined by the legendary Yvonne Turner. Yvonne Turner is a producer, songwriter, DJ, musician, composer, remixer. <sighs> you name it. She's probably done it. She's known as one of the only women among the elite group of DJs from our city's history. Think Paradise Garage era, think Larry Levon, Francois K. She's known for her many acclaimed productions. Think Loft Classic, Set Fire to Me, Willie Colon. She is known for her jaw-dropping DJ sets. Think uh, Coloring Lessons Block Party, 718 yeah. Sessions. <laughs> that was um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
be that as it may, Yvonne has struggled for a bit just with receiving credit for many of her accolades. So today we will sit down with her and take a look at her long, rich, and vibrant career. Please help me welcome Yvonne Turner. Yay! Thank you. I'm honored, really honored to be here, and I'm going to try not to get emotional during this process. (laughs) To get started, we wanted to take it back to the roots. You were born in Harlem, New York? Yes. Yes. I remember seeing that you lived in a couple different places in New York City. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. um, From Harlem Hospital to the projects. And then from, we moved up and then moved to the projects in the Bronx. Mm. (laughs) But all of my early memory, I've been drawn to music. You know, even when I was just a shorty, you know, Mm. laying in the bed in the projects. And I remember hearing the salsa music through my window, particularly in the summertime and those congas. And it was like, oh my God, you know, I was, I would stay in the bed all day and just listen to the music. But, you know, music has always been something that has been in my spirit and through my life and my journey. And it's been quite a journey. I had nurtured it. I was involved in all aspects of it that brought me to this point. Was your family, anybody in your family musical or? My mother. My mother was in the choir, in the church choir. Okay. But she liked more like classical music. And I got into that too, like in the choir and church and we learned Handel's Messiah, you know, and things like that. But, uh, but she also worked at the library, New York Public Library. And back in the day, like you can take out CDs and DVDs now. Back in the day, you could take out albums. And my mother would bring home albums. And it was so strange because I was thinking about this as well. And I was like, well, my mother really didn't play the music, but she brought it home. And then I realized she brought it home for me, for me to listen to. And I mean, the whole range of things, you know, all kinds of jazz pieces. And and, uh, I would have an upright piano at home, a little raggedy upright piano, but I would put on the music and play along with it as if I was in the band. I was young then. I was like junior high. You were self-taught then. Yes, but I did have formal training once I got to high school. Once I got to high school, and they don't have these kind of programs in schools as they used to, which is unfortunate because there's a lot of people who are talented that are missing out. But I learned theory in high school. I learned how to read music and write music. And I, I used my voice as my instrument. And in doing so, I was in three choruses in school, mixed chorus, all-girls chorus, and acapella chorus. And that was very instrumental in my development, you know, through the years. But this was part of the curriculum at school then? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But it was, you know, I also took photography. So it was like those kinds of things were available to students back then in New York City. I don't know if it's available so much these days. Can you tell us a bit about how that led you into DJing and production? Where did you kind of get your start there? At home at family affairs and get out the kitchen, just play some music. (laughs) (laughs) That was my gig and I did that well. And people in the neighborhood started hearing me because I would play it. My neighbors would hear me play and word got around in the neighborhood. And then I was offered to play for some Jamaicans who had, who were giving parties in Brooklyn at the ozone layer, believe it or not, on Flatbush Avenue. That was my residency every week. I would pack up my crates of records. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have a roadie. I needed a roadie, but I didn't have a roadie back then. Yeah. 
But um, I would pack up my records and my gear, and every Wednesday I would play those Jamaican parties. And of course, they also had a DJ who would play the reggae set. Yeah. And that was like, okay, I'm still downloading all of this stuff, you know, so that when I got to production, you know, all of those experiences influenced how I worked. Just for those who are I guess, new to DJing and traveling around with records, you're coming from, let's say, the Bronx, Harlem, all the way down to Brooklyn. How many crates? How many Two records crates. Are, wow. Minimal. On the train? <laughs> no, I had a car. Okay. Okay, cool. No, I had a car and I would, a, a Volkswagen convertible. <laughs> and it was just me in the, in the car with my gear in the back. Me and the music. Yeah. yeah. How old were you then? Very early 20s. Yeah, and, and uh, besides doing the residency at the Ozone Layer, I was a mobile DJ. So yes, I did travel up to the Bronx sometimes or wherever the gigs were. Actually, I was still DJing when the garage opened and a couple of times I had a couple of gigs and I would go home and drop my gear off and then go to the G mm. afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah. Stylistically speaking, were you playing a similar type of music to what you'd hear in the garage or in the loft or what were your, do you remember like when you were Funkadelic, first Funkadelic, okay. Aura, Double Exposure, you know, stuff like that I was mm. playing. Mm. But see, going to the loft and the garage, I was given the opportunity to hear things that I had never heard before. Mm. And that was the beauty of it. It expanded my horizon in terms of music and actually how good music should sound. That was a great lesson for all of us who went to the G and the loft. You know, it was like, okay, we're ready to learn. And, we, you know, we walked in there and we just, you know, received all of that. It was awesome. When I walked in the loft the first time, I was like, <gasps> and then I stopped going to the bars. Cause <laughs> I was like, I don't need to go to the bars because this is something totally different. Mm. I was just like reborn. Mm. So with all the stuff that I learned coming up and then to have David Mancuso and then later Larry just serve up all this other music, it was just incredible. And all those experiences is what I bring when I go to the studio mm. and produce that whole experience, you know, because it was so amazing to me. And it's like the first time you, you know, have a piece of candy or something like that is <laughs> so wonderful. And, you know, you want to share that with other people. Yeah. That's my motivation when I'm in the studio. Mm. Speaking to those experiences, I'm curious, was there... A particular experience that you had maybe at Ozone, at the loft, at the garage, um, where you said, I want to start making music? Like a point in time where you felt like you wanted to kind of put your stamp on it, like start getting into production. It was a process. Mm. It didn't happen overnight. For women DJs, like you talked about, that there weren't many women DJs mm -hmm. back then. There's so many now. It's so wonderful to see. Mm. But back then, I only remember Sharon White, who had a great residency at the Saint, and also Gail King. She played mm. at the Red Parrot. But Gail King was different because she did do some production work as well. Mm -hmm. But so I really wasn't pursuing the DJ thing back yeah. then because I didn't think I was going to get too far with that, not knowing that I wasn't going to get too far with production because there were 
probably less women doing production. Yeah. But I, I wasn't thinking in that in those terms. I'm just like, okay, the DJ thing. All right, I did that. Let's let's see what else is going on in the mm. music business. Today, you see a lot of DJs who will start producing to try to make a name for themselves or just kind of get some global notoriety. It wasn't really about that. I wasn't driven like that. Mm -hmm. I was purely for the art. Yes. Still am. So, you know, I, I don't care how many likes I get or don't get. Mm -hmm. You know, if I deliver some music that stands the test of time, I'm good with that. Mm -hmm. That's my motivation even today. And I was reading not too long ago also. Do you know that there's over 100,000 songs released every day? Wow. That's pollution. I mean, that's going <laughs> to... That's going to kill the business. Between that and AI, is going to kill the business. Yeah. And so if we don't, as stewards of this art, do our best to produce and play and perform the best music that we can from our heart and our soul, it's going to be lost. Hmm. 100,000 a day? I'm not in any hurry to put some just anything out, <laughs> some four tracks. Exactly. I want a song that has some meaning and some feeling mm. and Makes you go home and say, what was that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so if it takes me five years to put out a record, that's, I'm good with that too. Mm. Intention. You know, can you write? Exactly. Lyrics. You have to be able to have something have some meaning, lasting power. I'm not just putting out something to put on track source or whatever. Something, you know, that you can do four bars of this, eight bars of that, you know, blah, blah, blah. For me, it has it has to be more. It has to mean more. And it should for all of us. Go back to how you got into production. I mean, there you were. You wanted to produce. What were the steps you took in order to achieve this? Well, I was working at Downstairs Records. And that was a great experience for me, too, because I learned what sold and what didn't sell. I learned the retail part. And that was very important in terms of, okay, well, I could hear a record. like, no, this is not going to go too far. My whole career is based on my ear. And so once I left downstairs, I went to Streetwise Records because a friend of mine was working there. And he was like, come on, I was there downstairs four years. So I'm like, okay, I'm ready to do something else. Mm. Once I master something, I'm ready to do something else. Then I see, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I went to downstairs records in the mail room. I didn't care. I just wanted to get in the door. Mm. Eventually, as I'm listening to what's going on, because this is an independent label, so there's a lot of freedom and a lot of things going on. And a few producers, they had some sessions, and I was like, hmm, let me go check that out. Mm. And I was like, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> I could do that. Yeah. You know, because my ear, you know, because if you have a good engineer... And some people feel like, you know, you have to be everything. You don't have to be everything. Music is best collaboratively. You know, you, know, you could be in the basement and do whatever. And, but if you're doing it by yourself, it, it's limited in, in the scope. So anyway, so I, when I observed a couple of sessions and I was like, okay, you know, I want to take a stab at this and try it. And um, I was at Streetwise and Arthur Baker was the A&R person there and I asked him, in particular, because they, I was listening to the Colonel Abrams record, mm. and I was like, well, I could bump this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he said yes, and I was like, cool. So I went to uh, Blank Tapes, 
with Bob Blank, the renowned engineer, one of the best in the business at the time. And um, he welcomed me with open arms and he showed, he told me one thing I'll never forget. He said, just keep the groove. He led me and taught me my way around doing production. Mm. Keep the groove. Mm. And that's what I've been trying to do all these years. <laughs> just keep the groove. The Conal Abrams track you mentioned that is Music is the Answer. Yep. What I've been reading, the original sticker on the record, the credit was to an Evan Turner. Yeah, Evan. Can you speak to that? Evan, yeah. I've adopted that as my alter ego. <laughs> it's interesting because even on Discogs, mm. under my name, you'll see Evan as Still, an alias. Yeah. But you know what? I like that they did that because it makes sense. You know, in case you were wondering, yes, this is one and the same person. Exactly. Again, I was young, real green, didn't know how to ask for, you know, get certain credit. And and so all I did was I did the mix and, okay, I'm done. Mm. And when Evan came out and then I did approach Arthur, you know, and he changed it and put my name on there. But then Arnett could speak to this. He also told me that. I forget the name of the gentleman, but it's, but it's Colonel and Marlon Freeman, right? Marston Freeman. Yeah, they mm. didn't want my name on the record. Mm. And, and so I guess they convinced Arthur Baker to take my name off the record. Wow. But some of these things I didn't learn right away. I learned these things years later. Mm. But like I say, I'm, I wasn't bitter about that because in the meantime, I was learning my craft to me. So it was worth it. Mm. It came from a place, it seems, of just being threatened that somebody would think they're not doing the whole record or the whole... Yeah, well, some men have problems with women being maybe a little bit better than they are. Exactly. That's the way I look at it. Still to this day. I believe that if I had been a guy, my career would have excelled, have taken a different turn. Can you speak to just some of the other artists who you've you've worked with, I know you've gotten to work with Arnold Jarvis, Willie Colon. Can you speak to those collaborations as well? Well, after I left Streetwise, I got a call from Carol Cooper, who worked at A&M Records, and she's very instrumental in my development as a producer. And she was aware of all the stuff that I was doing for Streetwise. And she reached out to me and she said, I got a project for you. And I was like, great, you know, because I'm doing this now for another label. So I'm expanding my my reach, it was Willie Cologne. That was pivotal because as a producer, I started utilizing some personal skills that other people doing mixes weren't doing. For example, I did ad-libs on that song. Did I, I sing you, on that song? I think you did the chorus as well. You did the vocals on the... I didn't do Set Fire to Me, but I did Set Me on Fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Already Set Me. You know, and I did a little vocal, and Carol told me to do that, and I was like, really, I can do that? I was like, okay, <laughs> this is going to be fun too. But, you know, again, my development as a producer, and I agreed to do that for free originally mm-hmm. because, you know, they always come to you and say, well, we don't have the budget. I think that's a woman thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any event, Carol, I agreed to do it because sometimes you have to prove to people what you can do. And I'm very honored and amazed at how well that record turned out Hmm. and it lasted for over 30 years and I agreed to do it for free but as I say that as the story goes Carol I believe 
went to the big suits and said, you got to pay her. And I did get paid. And that was my first paid gig. Can we just get a quick round of applause? (laughs) (laughs) Set fire to me. Set me on fire. (laughs) Arnold Jarvis. I was introduced to Arnold by Tommy Musto. Tommy Musto had a bunch of singers. Joe Church, Arnold Jarvis. And um, that was interesting because Tommy and I did the track together. And that infamous bass line just came from, you know, from the depths of me. But we did this track together. Really, Tommy did the programming on the drums and I did the bass line, played the horn Mm. on the keyboards and some other parts. But was also part of my growth was that was the first song. Not only did I write, but I also wrote the lyrics. And in school, going back to development in school, I was a good writer. I said, well... To me, songs is just poetry put to music. So I can kind of like take a stab at this and try this. And that's how that turned out. Take some time out. It seems like a lot of the songs that I write have a spiritual intent because I feel that I'm just a messenger. And that's part of my purpose being here on this earth to deliver positivity. Take some time out, change for the better. Those those types of things are... I mean, are you aware that that has been rewrite so many times and it, it still continues to be rewrite? Yeah, we were just listening to a version of that today in the car, <laughs> right over here yeah. today. And I was like, hmm. But uh, yes, I am aware. And I've, I've dealt with it in some terms, yes, with defected. Okay, mm-hmm. so you do have some rights to some of these yes. uh, songs then? Yes. Would you say that these early collaborations kind of led to bigger opportunities in your case, like perhaps the Whitney Houston remix or maybe some more DJ bookings. Like what, what did these collaborations mean for your career at that point? It was just a matter of getting more bookings for remixes. Hmm. Again, I wasn't DJing at that point, so that was not in my realm of thinking. I was really just into production. Hmm. Yeah. See, I don't compete with anybody. Hmm. I compete with myself. And so every project that I do, the next one has to be better than the one before. Exactly. That's how I compete with myself, and that's where I operate. So one thing led to another. I did Lisa Stansfield, and her manager, Jazz Summers, actually was my manager for a few years, but he was very instrumental in in getting me some major gigs and taking me to the next level as mm-hmm. well. Because I did three songs on Lisa Stansfield. Mm. I did Jeffrey Osborne, If My Brother's in Trouble. Yes, with classic. And then Whitney. That was like, whoo. <laughs> you know, at that time. They were with Arista UK. And so Jazz Summers was with Arista, affiliated with Arista UK, had a lot of influence there. Because Lisa Stansfield was with that label. And so, yeah, I did a lot of stuff for Arista UK. A lot of things that people don't know about. And a lot of stuff for the UK market. Misha Paris, Yaz, Lonnie Gordon did a lot of stuff. And that was good. They paid well. You see, some people, they messed the game up because they was asking for too much money and not putting (laughs) out quality product. Mm. I, I hear back in that time, there was a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, you know, you get get 25 grand for one song. Why? And then you're not putting out quality product. We think about... That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, no, I mean, you're not wrong. When you think about remixes, a name comes to mind, and that's uh, Francois K. 
Uh, my mentor. Yes. Yeah, I know you have a long history together. Can you speak briefly to that? Yeah, Where did absolutely. you meet and <laughs> work together? Frenchie. I've known Francois since I worked at the record store. And he was the little odd little soul and would come into the store and come behind the counter and start playing music. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but we remain friends to this day. And then after I did uh, Willie Cologne, I wasn't working regularly, but he came and approached me and asked me if I wanted to manage his recording studio. What was that? That was just a blessing tenfold. Because not only was I managing his studio, but I was also being mentored by Francois. And he taught me so much about best practices in production. Mm. You know, Willie Colon was great, but again, the next step mm. in being excellence in your profession, attention to detail, unlike so many others, you know, you'll listen to that on your headphones, you listen to it on a little AM radio set, you're listening to it on the big speakers, you're gonna to listen to it on every different realm. We talked about this on Facebook the other day. All those things that he taught me, invaluable. It's super important for all artists to have somebody, whether a mentor or a friend, just pushing them to be better with each and every project going forward. Because you know, if you're starting out and you're learning, it doesn't matter when you begin this new process, you should always look to people who know. And then you adopt those things and make them part of your, your work method. Again, when I go in the studio, I got all of that with me, all that armor, because <laughs> I know, okay, this is how you do it. Besides the creative process, you know, it's important to be professional and uh, so you don't get product that you can't play because it's not mastered right. Mm -hmm. right? I yeah. have a project out now too. This dub package that we're putting out on Just Us is actually really coming out. Look. And I'm like, okay, everybody, you know, has a program and they can master this and that. And I'm like, I'm going to the best because my work deserves the best. And so I was like, her powers, if anybody knows who her powers is, if you don't, you need to learn who he is. He's been, the, he's been the best for the last 30 years in this business and has mastered numerous projects, you know. So, yeah, that's what I do. Even uh, Libri Claro was mastered by her powers. So you, when you want the best, you work with the best. Mm. And, um, again, that's, that's the way I roll. You mentioned Just Us. Yes. It's one of our, My baby. One of our favorites. From uh, the Thank past you. couple of years, 2021, I believe. We got new life now because we got a new promoter. But <laughs> we <laughs> fell in love with it, and it was like he's working it for us. So uh, it's really um, cool. Yeah, we're all we're all super excited that you are um, putting music out again out into the world. But wanted to maybe chat a bit about maybe the hiatus that you took. What was that like? How did it feel stepping away from music for a bit? Maybe refreshing. Maybe not so much. It was necessary. Mm. The music business was very competitive as it still is. I didn't have a manager at that point in time. I had my last project I did was Lenny Kravitz, It Ain't Over Till It's Over. To me, one of the best songs I'd ever done, acoustically speaking. Mm. Thank you. Hey, y'all can clap it up. <laughs> and when I left, I, you know, and I always would like begin a project and I would pray. And I would ask for strength. And at the end of the day, it was like, I've done my best. 
And I dropped the mic with that one and walked away. Mm. Sometimes I think, you know, life takes you on different turns because that's what his design is. And so when I went away, I was a little burnt out, but I felt unappreciated because, you know, I've done Whitney and I'm not getting any further and I've done this and that and, you know, and I'm not getting any further. So I needed to step away for a little bit. And um, while I was away, actually, I worked at a school for many years with students who needed a little more love and attention. And uh, that was my assignment, you know, but I always it was always my plan to come back to the, to the business. So that was always what was in my head. And then. Some things happened in my life personally, and I was like, okay, I'm ready to, uh, God, I don't want to hurt none of these kids up in here, so <laughs> <laughs> it's time for me to, <laughs> to move on yeah. and get back to what I do. Mm. That's when uh, I had the uh, Can't Let You Go, the multi-track. Only the Holloway. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which was written many decades ago, and but after she passed and... Um, I wanted to honor her, and uh, I knew I had this record available, so I was like, this is the one that's going to bring me back. Mm. And I went to my collaborative people, Alan Friedman and Lenny Underwood, and uh, we got together. We updated it, mm. gave it some fresh life, and um, that was the one that that brought me back. And how amazing was that at the end of the day that we got a Grammy nomination? Mm. That's a great testimony to patience, isn't yes. it? <laughs> <laughs> to be patient and, and don't rush things, you know, because, you know, we all have special gifts. And sometimes it's not about the music. Like we said, it's about touching another soul. And sometimes it's not just with music, it's but with your words and your deeds and your kindness. I heard you brought that to Louis, Louis Vega for the remix. Yeah. I, I love him for what he did because, mm. again, he reached out to me and he brought me back. Because mm. when I sent it to him, I had sent it to one other person and I never heard back from them. And then I sent it to Louis and he got back to me like in 10 minutes. <laughs> That's Louis. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, what do you want to do with this? And I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. The door just opened again. Mm. You know, that was my road back. Mm. You said that at this time you didn't have, or back then you didn't have management. Now you're working with Bex. For the best. In years now. Bex? Yes. So a round of applause for Bex. The best partner one yeah. could ever have. Mm. Because when I do the music, I hand it off to her and she does her thing and it's wonderful and gives me so much confidence to know that I have somebody like Bex as a partner for Strong Enough Entertainment. It's, it, she's amazing. Can you tell us a bit about Strong Enough Entertainment and what you, you guys are working on? Well, Strong Enough on paper <laughs> is a multimedia company um, with a focus on music production, but we also uh, have other artistic disciplines specifically uh, visual artists that we work with and mentor and you try to encourage. Um, but more than that, Strong Enough is a mindset, a way of being. You know, it's confidence to say that I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to be here. 
I'm strong enough to be in this room. I'm strong enough to be in that studio. And together, Bex and I, we're stronger and we're stronger together. Mm. And that's what strong enough is about, not just in music, but in life, okay? That we are enough mm. and we're strong enough to handle any adversity and then we brush it off and keep moving. Mm. You know, so that's what strong enough represents to us. And we're very mindful of how we work and how we interact with our peers and others in this industry. Wow. I just have one more question and then want to open it up to the audience uh, for a few. Very cool. It's been really beautiful, really inspiring to hear about your rich career. Curious for upcoming producers like myself. Like some of the uh, producers in I'm the I'm so audience. proud of you guys, though, really. <laughs> Let's you. hear it for Muscle Cars. <laughs> because these guys are doing it. We have passed the baton on to them, and they're doing it with, with integrity and class and grace. And I love you guys for that. Love you back. Thank you. Yeah, my question is, what is the advice that you have for younger and up-and-coming producers like us? I thought about this, too, and you asked me this before, and... And when I think about it, I don't really have advice mm. because this next generation are doing what I did and take already taking it to the next level. I mean, they're doing their brand. They're, they're doing not just DJing. They're doing production. Mm. All I can say is just keep working, keep hustling, keep mm. working at it. And, and But also, as I mentioned earlier, to try to do quality work. It is mm. really, really, really important that we just don't put out garbage. Yeah, I think that artists of our generation get very caught up in the the pace. The attention span gets smaller and smaller as we uh, go on. And so everybody thinks that they need to put out a record every week, every month, every Bandcamp Friday. So. Yeah, but you know what? When I played at the block party, one thing I learned that those kids... They were receptive to good music. Mm, yes. They were like craving it. Mm. You know, so I wouldn't dare put on something that repeats, repeat, 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 repeat. I can't do that. <laughs> I will never, you will never hear me play something like that. Mm. You know, that was very encouraging that the younger generation is thirsting for good music. Can we give a big round of applause for Ivan Turner? Thank you. Thank you, my sister. Next up, we have Your Love, uh, Tamasuma and Lakuti's party in the nursery. But first, we wanted to open it up to a few quick questions, if anybody had. Yeah, so I, uh, you said something that was very interesting. You said it doesn't... We said a couple of things, actually, your whole speech. But <laughs> you said it doesn't matter where you start as long as you keep improving and then you also just said about uh, releasing quality. And I wanted to know, how do you kind of balance that? Because then you could like get so focused on producing quality that you, let's say, over-engineer it or work on it so much that you don't actually release it. You know, you can get in your head and things like that. So that's always kind of like finding that steady balance. Say, okay, I've done enough. I can release it versus, okay, this is garbage. Well, that's, a, that's the danger because, you know, overproducing and... and and not releasing music is something that we probably all might fall into that Absolutely. trap. Yeah. But the thing is to spend time on it 
And then if you have people that you trust in your circle, you know, you can get a little feedback, see how they respond to it. But spend, you know, more than, you know, just like a week, <laughs> you know, spend a little time on it. But don't be afraid to release it because overproducing, that's what that is. A lot of that is based on, you know, you just scared to like release it to the world. And as artists, that is always something that we have to battle. Learning when to let go. Yes. Mm. Yes. And then some things are, you know, you know, you might put it down and then come back to it later, but start something else. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about how you create a dub? Because I think there is a lot of misunderstanding about what a dub is. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes people That's think it's just an yeah. instrumental. Mm -hmm. But you are known for your dubs mm -hmm. and you've learned from... Jamaicans and Francois. So can you just describe your process a little bit about the dub? Thank you, Bex. <laughs> <laughs> the dub, yes, came from working with the Jamaicans and then working with Francois because I watched his process and how he did a mix and how when he did like the dub mix, it was like very experimental, very trippy. For me, it's that and then some. For me, it's like, that's where I shine. So if I'm commissioned to do a remix for somebody, I'm going to make sure that their vocals are pristine, the arrangement is great, this and that. And then I'll give them, I'll take the vocals, lead vocals out, give them an instrumental, and then it's dub land. So dub time is like when I get to express my own personal creativity. So I'll take a little bit of the original and then take it and flood it fly and do something totally different. Even like the dub on Just Us, the Mystic dub, which mm, came yes. by, came like really accidentally after Ayana did her vocal. And she was done like so early. It was like, okay, we got all the studio time we're gonna do. Do another dub. And then I had my keyboard player there, Lenny Underwood, and then he played some really interesting little part and it took its own its own life you know so it's like to me creating dubs is really who if you want to know who i'm about listening listen to my dubs mm. yes i think there's a lot of misconception at least in the dance community yeah dubs, dub is, is yeah, dubs just are not just instrumental, instrumental or, with yeah. just putting vocals in it and you mm. gotta like put a little effect on it you gotta like <laughs> rearrange it yes. you know you gotta put something that you didn't expect in there mm. It's all those things and then some. Just one last question. So I know you've done a lot of records and I was listening to a talk by John Mayer and he was like, he makes a song and he thinks it's great, but sometimes the crowd or like the world doesn't respond the same way. So I have a question of like, can you tell when a song is going to, I guess, hit or like when your song feels like a classic to you? Like, does it feel like it's going to be a switch or like? Is it something that has to be No, you, can't, you never can tell because, again, all of the flooding of material that's out there and people's tastes change and trends change and styles change. So you really don't know. You just have to be confident in what you do. And hopefully, you know, maybe if you need to go back and fix something, yeah, sure. But some things are just what they are. I think we can end it on that. I want to thank you a million times over for joining us. Thank you. Please give a, another round of applause to Yvonne Thank Turner. you, guys. Thank you, everybody.
Thanks so much for tuning into this RE Exchange with Yvonne Turner. Many thanks to Brandon and Craig for moderating this conversation and to Naishka Chandran for facilitating its publication. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Yvonne Turner's remix of Can't Let You Go by Lolita Holloway. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please subscribe to the RA Exchange wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to our full archive of conversations on ra.co or on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Until next week, take care. Thank you.